I'm a big fan of uh, board games. I know many of you as well enjoy them, so we share in the love of them. So what I thought we would do is uh, I did some research on some of the best board games, top board games of all time. And what I'd like to do is I'm going to put up some uh, pictures of those board games, a few of them. And if, if that particular board game has really uh, meant a lot to you, loud, roaring applause. If you think that that particular board game is unbelievably lame and those who play it are cowardice, uh, then please give some loud boos, okay? So I, I hope the framework is clear. Board game number one. How about let's start with the ever-classic... Who's a booer of Monopoly? Are you serious? What's wrong with you people? It's like, Monopoly is like, it's like the Lord's game, you know? I mean, all right, so maybe not Monopoly. How, how about this? How about this game, okay? How about Risk? Whoa. We already got standing ovations. <laughs> Were there any boos to risk? Okay, of course, some females. Um, all right, all right, listen, listen. One of my personal faves right here. Check it out. Candyland. Hi, Heidi and I still to this day, still to this day, I'm like, babe, a movie or Candyland? Like, what do you want to do? And nine times out of ten, we're picking Candyland, you know? It's, it's timeless. It's epic, man. You get... You get one of those cards that like propels you up the, it's like shoots and ladders times, anyway. Finally, finally, how about this one? Here we go. Sellers of Catan. I'm going to go ahead and be really honest with you all. My personal feeling, and this is, again, this is my personal, is that like this game is just really weird. Does anyone else agree with me? It's like people who play it are just strange. Is that? It doesn't, it doesn't seem that great to me. I don't know. It's kind of weird. So I, I, know, I know it's not a, a board game per se, but, but one of my favorite games all time is, is Jenga. Any, any Jenga fans here? Let's see if I can set this up well. I'm going to try to play a little Jenga here. Okay. Let's see if I can do this without knocking them all over. Close, close. No one need, no one breathe right now, okay? Yeah, there we go. Okay. So um, the, the premise of Jenga, right? And first of all, some of you are the worst Jenga players ever because you're unbelievably clumsy and the game's over in like 20 seconds, okay? Have any of you ever played Jenga and you were like, you, you knocked out the first one and you picked the top one off, okay? Um, so, so the premise of Jenga, right, is, is you're trying to like find one that's a little bit loose, you know, and you're trying to very, very carefully, you know, kind of press it out and pull it out, whoa, 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 and then put it on top. I mean, that's, that deserves some applause. I mean, that's like right in live action, okay? Um, and, and so the thing that I love about Jenga is, is it is a skill board game, okay? Candyland, not much skill involved. Settlers of Catan, no skill involved, Okay. Jenga is the ultimate skills challenge. Okay. Now, now, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, listen. 
Two weeks ago, we began a five-week journey on the resurrection. And I think that we, we came to a very clear point of contention that uh, I'm not so sure that all of you walked away fully understanding. And that point was this, okay? That the resurrection of Jesus means nothing or everything. There is no in-between. And my sense is, is that believers feel like they can kind of dance around the resurrection like they're playing Jenga. You know, it's really not that big a deal. We can just, we can kind of take some, take some chunks out of it every once in a while. You know, we can, we can believe in it here and then find convenience in, in it later. Uh, but ultimately, what I want to propose even in a deeper fashion tonight is the resurrection is like grabbing the bottom of Jenga and just like, lay, like if you take the resurrection out, there's literally nothing left. But people feel like, based on how they live, that the resurrection is arbitrary. Look, give or take, it really doesn't matter. Uh, ultimately, we just want something, uh, some sort of promise for our eternity. And so uh, tonight what I want to do is I want to, like, with a full head of steam, dive just right into the very crevices of our heart with some very, very deep stuff tonight. Um, tonight, there will be things that happen in your heart I'm guessing that maybe haven't happened in a long, long, long time because we are going to be confronted over and over and over with the daily implications of this truth. So part two of a five-week series, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Anyone who wants to play Jenga later, challenge me, come on up. I will win. Uh, it be great to... Find some good competition. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 12. We saw so much awesome truth in the first 11 verses in what is called the resurrection chapter in the New Testament. Here we go, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Well, apparently in Corinth, that's who Corinthians is written to. And you remember, Corinth is a church in disarray. A lot of pagan worship, a lot of very young Christians living their faith out very immaturely. Apparently in Corinth, there are some people that say, well, look, um, maybe Jesus has resurrected. But in terms of our resurrection or our life after death, uh, that's not a reality. Which, which makes no sense why you would believe in Jesus then. But that's what's happening. There's a segment, again, the, the word says some. There's some people in Corinth that are saying, Jesus, maybe, maybe not. But in terms of, of our resurrection after death, it's, it's not going to happen. So here's what he says in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. His point, again, is resurrection is everything. If Jesus raised, then there's resurrection. If Jesus didn't raise, or if you don't believe that there's resurrection for all those who follow him, then the implication, the inference, is that Jesus didn't raise either. Well, now, he is going to build seven truths on the premise of this. What if the resurrection never happened? 
And he's going to take Corinth, just like he's going to take you and I tonight, through seven things, very specific things. If the resurrection did never happen, if it never occurred, then this would be the reality. Let's start in verse 14. And if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And so number one, the very first thing that we see here is if the resurrection never happened, then our preaching is in vain. Listen, I know some of you guys know my story. I started preaching at 13 years old, okay? I've you know, spent that entire time from then until now in ministry, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of teaching, sermons, etc. It's so incredibly hurtful to think, even have the thought that somehow I have wasted 23 years of my life preaching fables to people in hope somehow of fueling some sort of hope that actually doesn't exist about their afterlife. In other words, Paul's a preacher. He's a communicator. He shares the gospel. And what he's saying is, if there's no resurrection, then all of my preaching is in vain. It's meaningless. It's, fruit, it's fruitless. It, it bears nothing. We're just a bunch of people coming to a like political rally to get stirred up, to get our emotions, you know, kind of going, revved up a little bit, and then just to be sent out, uh, sent out to only come back again to the masquerade next week. Uh, here's what a good uh, man, maybe, maybe you've heard of him, uh, William Shakespeare. Here's what he said on the issue. I wasted time and now doth time waste me. Um, I just really wanted to say doth in a, a sermon. It feels somewhat appropriate. But, but it's, it's kind of a brilliant statement. Like the thought of somehow 23 years of wasted time. That somehow every word that you and I have ever believed. Listen, if the resurrection isn't true, then what in the world are we doing here? Seriously, it's, it's like this has just kind of become our, our, our social activity. There's no resurrection. If there is a resurrection, though, if he did in fact raise, if the tomb is empty, then everything changes. It's crazy to think of it that way, but he doesn't just say preaching is in vain. He also uh, says this, your faith is in vain. Next slide, look at this. So it's not just that preaching is in vain, but it's also that faith is in vain and we've completely lost all screens. Are we okay? We coming back? No, we're gone. Okay. So, here, okay, there we go. There we go. Your faith is in vain as well. Now, uh, to understand a vain faith, I want to define for you what an impact of a vain faith would have. In other words, what does it look like? Okay, three things, very simple things. Number one, the impact of a vain faith, belief goes as far as your creativity. Uh, some of you guys believe a God that you've created in your mind. Uh, my uh, assumption is that the vast majority of American Christianity believes in a God that they made up. Because what I see America doing is anytime they struggle with the scripture, anytime they like struggle with an aspect of God's character, then they just make something up. Oh, well, God really, he didn't really mean that there. Like, he really didn't mean to say that, you know, that, that hell is a possibility. Or he really didn't mean to say that he's the only way. 
What he really meant to say was, you know, there's a lot of different ways, but if you choose Jesus, then it means this. No. But when you have a vain faith, a meaningless, fruitless faith, then you just make up whatever you want. And some of you are like, well, Mark, but how how do you know if you make up a God that's convenient for you? You know because it's not the God of the Scriptures. Again, some of you only believe in Jesus. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, you're like, that weirds me out. No, thank you. I want nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. I remember some bad memories growing up. Or some of you are like, I I don't really want to look at Father God, especially the Father God of the Old Testament, where he wipes out seemingly men, women, and children in some of the conquests of the Israelites. The problem is God is Father, God is Son, and God is Spirit. So somehow you're like, well, yeah, it's just kind of me and Jesus. You know, we're just kind of in this kumbaya, hold hand, boyfriend, girlfriend, relationship sort of thing. The problem is that's not the God of the scripture. And so a vain faith, a meaningless, fruitless faith, is when you have just made up a God like a potter with clay. Many of you have done that. I have certainly done that at times. We must repent of that now. Secondly, the impact of a vain faith is trust has an asterisk. We could also say it this way, truth has an asterisk. So in other words, the way you look at Scripture, it's like, ah, we're going to take that, but this over here, not so much. And these uh, commands of Christ, yeah, like we need to, I don't think so. We're not going to highlight those. They're, They're a little bit too hardcore. I mean, Jesus certainly wouldn't, wouldn't call us to love our enemies, asterisk, like that. You know, some, some rendition of the Greek kind of skewed that and, and misplaced that. When you have a vain faith, then trust and truth have all kinds of asterisks all over them. But when you have a genuine, Christ-centric, change-hearted faith, then your faith says, no, 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 actually... Um, There's no asterisks here at all. This is God's word. It is inerrant. It's beautiful. It's living and active. Is it tough? Yes. Are there pieces of it when I read it? I'm like, seriously, God? Like like how or why? Yes. But you come to this place where you know there are no asterisks, no man-made exemptions, where you take a paragraph out and insert whatever you want in. The last thing about vain faith, the impact of it, I always thought this was like the cheesy way of sharing the gospel. Like, you know, you have this God-shaped hole in your heart and, you know, you're just always empty and you need Jesus to fill it. That always seemed weird to me, right? Because then, like, Jesus became like a piece of pizza. You know what I mean? Like, I'm hungry and I'm empty and I eat Jesus pizza, which probably is Papa John's, and then I get, (laughs) and then I get filled But the more and more that I process it, the less and less I criticize the statements about emptiness. Because I talk to non-believers all the time, and this is how they describe how they feel. Mark, why at the end of every day do I feel empty? Mark, why at the end of every day do I feel like I have no purpose? Mark, Mark, why in the world do I feel like I'm here for nothing? It's because when you have a vain faith... It is a consistent, overwhelming sense of nothing. 
of empty. That's the very definition of vain. Emptiness, purposeless, fruitless. So without the resurrection, then all of our faith is just vain. All of our preaching is vain. It's meaningless. It's fruitless. Do you understand how devastating that is? If there's no resurrection, then then everything we've said that we believed is just for our self-esteem, my friends. So we literally come together, hope for the best, stir one another's self-esteem only to be sent out. I mean, that's the power of a non-resurrection. He's not done, though. He's not done calling us to the table. He's not done challenging us. Here's what he says in verse 15. We are even found, he says, to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. You see what he's saying? Maybe this will help you. So have you ever told a bunch of friends about a movie that you were really, really excited about and you thought they would all love and then they all hated it? Have you ever been there before? Right? It's like when a dude, like some of you guys, you're like, dude, you have to see how, you know, how to lose a guy in 10 days. It's like, it's totally awesome. It's, it's like a dude flick. It's going to be, it's like gladiator kind of, you know. And, and then this, total, this has happened to you, I know. And then you go to the theater and you're not even watching the movie because you're just watching the reaction of all of your friends, right? It's like, right, that was awesome, right? And you're like looking down. But then you realize everybody is hating it and now hating you, Right? Because they're like looking down like, why did you bring us to this? Like this is the worst mistake ever, you know? Like you told us this was Gladiator and this is, you know, Reese Witherspoon, right? Is she, anyway, it's like some blonde actress, you know? This is just weird, okay? Listen, you feel in that moment the tension of I have just essentially told everyone a lie. And now I'm going to be known as like the worst Rotten Tomato critic ever, you know? Because now every time you're like, guys, we got to go see this movie. Everyone's like, nope, don't need to see it at all, right? Don't need to see it at all. What Paul's saying is, if there is no resurrection, let this sit on your shoulders for a second. Then we're all misrepresenting God. That every word that's coming out of our mouth is not just making a God in our own minds but it's literally lying about who God is. So I've tried to think about it in the other way, the other fashion, the other angle. The other opportunities we can have our whole life to represent God. In fact, the scripture calls us ambassadors. So as much uh, hatred that you feel when you misrepresent something, some of you guys have done that in relationships, as much like, Uh, horrificness that you feel in that moment, how about the joy when you've represented it well? Imagine this, and and again, I I don't don't even, I can't even begin to fathom it, when all of a sudden, if you and I get the opportunity, I mean, I'm praying that Jesus comes back right now, that would be pretty incredible, right? But if we all got to share in that moment together and to see that our faith is sight, that we represented well, he actually is alive, He's not dead. He's he's now come back. And the scripture says in Philippians that there will be a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Imagine the joy of that moment. 
when not just our faith is realized, but we see we told everyone he was alive and that he's coming back, and boom, look what happened. It's not glory be to me, it's thanks be to God that he is who he said that he is. And we will get to celebrate, my friends, and will be celebrating. But Paul says, look, if there's no resurrection, then all of us, every single testimony, every, every time we've ever said, and I sense that God is doing this, or I know that all lies. All lies. Uh, but right now for you, and, and uh, certainly for me, but Mark, like, can it be, like, can it be that simple? Can it be that simple? Can it really be that somehow the resurrection can drive everything? Is anyone else struggling with that? You're struggling, maybe like me, because there's this tension inside. If it's really that simple, then why does it feel so complicated? If it's really the resurrection has profound implications in every second of my life, then, then why do I feel so forgetful? Well, he speaks to that. Look at this in verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, he says this, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. A reiteration. I love, Spurgeon speaks to all this. Uh, back a slide here. Spurgeon speaks this. Look at, here's what Spurgeon says. If Jesus rose, then the gospel is what it professes to be. If he rose not from the dead, then it is all deceit and delusion. So that's why he reiterates again in verse 16. Look, if, if the dead are not raised, then Christ hasn't been raised. Get this through your mind. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. And verse 17 is insane. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now, I would love uh, to go around the room with a microphone and ask you what you think the word uh, futile means or futile. It'd be really, really interesting. I think we'd have a lot of different definitions. I'm, I'm now obsessed with this word. I think it's a brilliant word, and it kind of helped us define it. Uh, I, I found this picture that I thought might be helpful. School starts September 4th. Resistance is futile, okay? So, because um, if you're struggling to understand what resistance means or what futile means, some of you have heard this statement, resistance is futile. In other words, like, your resistance is powerless. So essentially, futile means powerless. But then I looked at this picture longer. I was like, who's starting school on September 4th? You know what I'm saying? I'm like, oh, that's right. MoBAP does, right? <laughs> Do you know that? Missouri Baptist is out like March 30th, okay? How many, of you Mo- how many MoBAP students are here? It's crazy. I'm serious. I, like, yeah. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be speaking at their first you know one of their first chapels of the year this year and I'm like so when's the first chapel he's like October third I'm like what <laughs> well Bap goes to like the Christians go to school like way less anyway anyway <laughs> so what he's saying is your faith is powerless and the reason why that's so quintessential is because the scripture says the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of what. Power, Paul says, I want to experience and know the power of the resurrection. So if our faith is powerless because we believe or there is no resurrection, then not just is our faith uh, in vain, it's, it's that we've lost 
everything that the faith in itself provided. Like it's gone. It's all, there's zero power. But then he says, uh, what I want to claim to be, to be the most powerful of these seven. Uh, he says this uh, at the end of the same uh, verse, in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, uh, been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Uh, so let's say it this way. A sin is not atoned for. If there's no resurrection, then sin is not atoned for. I want to, I wanna, can I just bring you in right now? Is that cool? Can it, be, can it be this simple? Can it be so simple that every single day, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 times, we come to moments where it's indulge or not, gossip or not, feed the addiction or not, yell at our spouse or not, get angry with our kids or not, cheat on the test or not, swear, use the Lord's name in vain or not, look at porn or not, and on, and I mean just moment after moment after moment. Can it be so simple that a belief in the resurrection could bring us to the precipice of indulge or not, and in that moment, that beautiful moment that has arrived, the tension of who we are, that somehow we are both, uh, both uh, uh, and the old creation uh, has been killed and crucified, and that we're a new creation, and somehow we have a flesh still, but we're in the spirit, somehow that in the moment of that tension, we look at that possible indulgence, and we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on, hold on, hold on. But he's resurrected. So why would I need that? Why would I ever desire that, in fact? And the cloud and the fog that was over you lifts. And you see this thing for what it is. And then you step back and run back to the Lord. And thank him again that the resurrection is real. Because if not, then sin is not atoned for, and all of us are dead. Uh, What I'm saying, my friends, is that we want to cheer on the resurrection, but then not live in light of it. Is it, can it, could it be as simple, the power of it, that somehow the veins find its way into every single second of our day. Uh, Instead, uh, what I see is um, a whole community at times, listen, a whole community at times that finds itself, that finds itself so burdened by sin that they don't know what they have now in Christ. They don't look at the opposite of this. All they say is, yeah, man, my my sin and my sin and my sin. I want to propose to you, we're going to talk about a whole lot tonight. I think the church is talking more about sin than a savior. Is anyone anyone else like seeing that? Uh, Let me step back and say it about me. I'm finding myself at times talking about sin more than a savior. 
Now sin is real. The tension is real. The battle is on. Romans 7, Paul says, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? All of that is real. No one in the scripture says you're going to be perfect now in Christ. That's not a teaching. 1 John says, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar. So no one, including me, is saying that. But is it possible we've like convinced one another that the battle is so real that really what we need to do is just talk about our sin and confess our sin and be transparent, uh, transparent about our sin. Sin, 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 sin. And every once in a while, enter Savior. The problem is, that's not the gospel. The gospel is, we were sinners, but God. We were dead in our trespasses, but God. Will we still struggle? Is the battle so real? Will we still indulge? Yes, and grace will reign and cover us and love will will pour over us. But Romans 6 verse 1 says, shall we go on sinning so grace may increase? By no means. You see, if there's no resurrection, then every single one of us are dead in our sins. That means if there is a resurrection, then could it be this simple? If we really believe it, then can we get to these moments where all of a sudden the fog of our addiction is awakened by our trust of a resurrection? Can I I say this to you? Listen, I think the world is longing to believe in the resurrection. The problem are Christians. I think they're longing for it. Why? Because they feel empty. They want hope. They long. They long to have something and believe in something greater than themselves. But they're looking at a bunch of people that are dead and yet claiming that they believe in something that's alive. We're creating mixed messages. And so I look at this text. You are still in your sins if there's no resurrection, which implies to me, if there's resurrection, I am no longer in my sins. Why? Because I am a new creation. Can I say it this way? I'm either a new creation or not, right? You are either a new creation or not. Again, will I sin? Will I struggle? Yes. I've said that over and over and over. I hope you understand that. But at the same time, I I can't somehow be a new creation and not a new creation at the same time. Are you with me, brother? You know? So listen, we're going to develop this more, but I want, I want you to see this. And I have to think that the church in Corinth right now is like hearing this being read uh, potentially in a gathering. And all of a sudden, the heinous reality of no atonement for sin hits them. And they don't have an opportunity to take it for granted anymore. Because all of a sudden they're struck with the reality that, hold on a second. If there's no, then there's no reunion with God. There's no way to bridge the gap. Then I'm, it's over. So he goes on. This is heavy, heavy stuff. He goes on. Look at this. Then those, then those, also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So he says in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, that grandma that loved the Lord, I mean, she gave her life to the gospel. My grandmother, journaling every day, every morning, waking up, seeing her journaling about the word. 
I mean, my grandma couldn't hear anything for the last 15 years of her life, but still her journal and her word sat open, and I guarantee you she was hearing from the Lord. And what, what, this, what Paul's saying is, if there's no resurrection, guess what? Grandma Nelvi has perished. She is dead. There, there's nothing for her. Now, I've tried to have this conversation before with a non-believer, and I want to bring you into it because... At times, logic helps me. Anyone, anyone else? Same reason, like, I, I share it all the time. Ten of eleven disciples killed because of their faith. They had to see the, the resurrection. They had to see a risen Lord. That's logic, okay? Uh, so for me, I, I've, I've had this conversation with some non-believers. I'll be like, all right, so listen. Let's say you're right. Let's say there's no God. Let's say there's no afterlife, okay? So then what you're saying is, if you're right, then when I die, I die. Right? Yes, that's true. If I'm right, when you die, you die. I'm like, okay. All right, so let's say, let's say I'm let's say I'm right. Okay? That Christ is real, that if you believe in him, then you're gonna have everlasting life because of the debt that he's paid, the ransom that's. And if I'm right, then then like forever with Jesus. So I'm like, look, if we just took the kingship of Christ out of it and just looked on complete logic, if I'm wrong, I die. If I'm right, I'm in heaven. If I'm wrong, like, come on, you know what I'm saying? Like A plus B equals Yahtzee. Like, like this, is, this is confusing to me. Now, it's not as simple as logic. I understand that. But this is what Paul's saying. Listen, if there's no resurrection, grandma, she gone. You know, like there, there's, no, there's no more for her. There's no more for you. Now, as difficult as that may be to understand, he ends this section with verse 19, which honestly, the depth that he is communicating in verse 19 is crazy to me. If in Christ... We have hope in this life only. We are, of all people, most to be pitied. Let me read that again, just so you understand this. This isn't Shakespeare, this is Paul right here, okay? If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Let's say it this way. Number seven, look at this. The Christian is a fool. Think about how foolish we are if all of this is a hoax. Seriously, the, the, like everyone else, whoa, why do you guys eat that like, you guys eat that weird meal, that bread and that cup? You guys are foolish. And then you, you guys got like your radio station with your music, you know, that's kind of like B minus in comparison to the rest of culture, like foolish, right? You guys have words that you've made up that like makes you feel a part of things that no one else can understand. Foolish, you know, and all, look, you guys, you guys wear t-shirts that are 120% cotton, you know, that have Jesus fishes all over them. Foolish, right? And, and on and on and on. Listen, even more so in the context, you would give up your life for something that isn't real? Foolish. You would put your family in harm's way for something that is not real? Foolish. Paul's saying, if this thing isn't real, if resurrection didn't happen, then Christians are to be pitied because we are the greatest idiots on the face of the earth. 
But what if it's, what if it's not false? What if it did happen? Just take these seven things in. Look at this. Could you imagine if that was our reality? And unfortunately, I want to propose to you tonight, you can. I want to dig in here if I can. God, please come now. I just, I want to dig into your heart. I want to dig into mine. Lord, please come. We can say whatever we want with our mouth. But if our life says something different, then, then what's so different about these seven things and where we're at right now? Again, you can say all you want. The resurrection is real. But at the end of the day, if your life says, yeah, it's only real when. It's only nice when. Asterisk, asterisk then ultimately the power of the resurrection hasn't really gripped every second of your life. Listen, can it be that simple? I want to propose to you tonight, it has to be. That's what scripture says. But this one thing, next slide, this one thing is the thing that I'm wrestling with the most. Because I feel the tension. I know how powerful my sin feels. Anyone else? Listen, some of you feel buried right now. Buried. In addiction, in loss, and in some sort of expression of your freedom. And like you don't know which way is up. There's not even a light at the end of the tunnel. You don't even know you're in a tunnel. So you know what I'm talking about because it's like I I don't... Mark, can it be this simple that somehow the resurrection has profound implications on sin? And then um, we must tonight wrestle with an incredible piece of Scripture. Can I share this with you? Is that cool? Look at this from Romans 6. For if we have been united with him In a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul, in this text, begins with the premise that the resurrection is real. And then he says this in verse 6. We know that our old self was what? Was crucified. Listen, I can't make that for me or for you say anything else. The old self was crucified. The scripture says in Corinthians, now we have a new self, a new creation. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order. So there's a reason why that happened. In order that the body of sin might be brought to what? Come on. Might be brought to nothing, literally nothing. Then can I ask you, why in the world have we trained one another to talk only about our sin? Sin, sin, sin. Be transparent. Be vulnerable. Nothing gets being transparent, being vulnerable. There is great freedom in it. There's healing in it, 100%. But when it becomes a lust, when the righteous or those who are in the moment really walking with God feel left out because they don't have copious amounts of sin to confess, isn't there a problem? 
When we can't celebrate the work of God in people's lives because we feel like if we were to celebrate, we would put down all those who are struggling, isn't there a problem? It's not that we can't walk with the hurting or journey with the hurting or take those who are confused or take those who who are battling in sin and encourage them and pray for them. That is our calling and our joy in Christ. But my friends, what about victory? Here is my sense, and I want to put this out to you. And again, I know I'm getting into the core of you. My sense is that we are way, way, way more articulate about our sin than we are the victory that we have in Christ. I mean, we can talk about it up and down and left and right, and we've been trained. But what I see is, listen, our old self was crucified. In order that this thing may be brought to nothing, so look at the end of verse 6, so that we would no longer be enslaved. And some people would say, oh, well, Mark, that's talking about eternity. The problem is every other passage in the scripture that's talking about this is talking about it now. You and I's victory in Christ is that sin no longer enslaves us. Every single one of us have heard a prominent lie. Every single one of us. Everyone in this room, believer, non-believer, doesn't matter. You've heard the same lie. We've all heard it. The same lie. Here's the lie. There's no way out. There's no way out. You're stuck here forever. Just keep on sinning. Keep on indulging. There's no way out. Listen, you're too far gone now. Haven't you heard it? Are you hearing it now? The resounding gong from the father of lies that is taking the thing that I think he now revels in in America. I've got those American Christians so focused on their sin that they have stopped believing the power of sin that somehow is completely conquered by a resurrection. Listen, I'm not the guy that sees Satan under every rock or that just because I missed a parking spot, Satan's after me. I'm not that guy. But I do believe that Satan is enjoying a culture, a church culture, a Christianity that has taken this truth and said, not true. There's no way out. There's no victory. I'm stuck in this forever. This addiction will be forever my battle. In order that, there's something that's happened. Look at verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, he's just beginning here, but I want to pause one second, one second. If you're like me, everything in you is, but Mark, but Mark, hold on a second, hold on a second, Mark. It's not that simple. But Mark, the war is going on. Yes, I know it is. I feel it. Listen, I just sinned against three friends this past weekend and had to go to every single one of them and confess my sin. The sin struggle is real. I hate my sin. I I know it's there. I I know it's even at times prominent. But the scripture says it doesn't have power over me anymore. I'm not enslaved to it. And I want to say this in the best way that I possibly can. I believe that I have allowed the lies to convince me that it still does grip me. 
No, I know the gospel's powerful, but my sin just feels too prominent. Lie, lie, lie. Verse 8, look at this crazy, crazy stuff. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion, what? Come on, over him, right? Death doesn't have a sting anymore. The end of 1 Corinthians 15 says, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now listen, I'm going to show you one more verse, one more. And I'm going to say, this verse, verse 11, is either true or not. That's it. It's either real or not. It's either in the scripture or not. We, are, we will either run from it or we will embrace it. So listen, just take it in, read it for a second, and you make your own assumption, guesstimation, belief on the truth of it. Here it is, verse 11. You also must consider yourselves when in glory? In eternity? Is this talking about glory? It's talking about right now. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin. Mark, the battle's real. Yes. But it has no dominion over me. It has no power over me. Why? Because my victory, church, your victory is in Christ. And Christ has conquered sin. And so then somehow we come to these moments, indulge, don't indulge. And all of a sudden the victory of the resurrection shows how powerful it is every minute of every day. But there's only two options. Those two options are this. If you believe in the resurrection, then you're dead to sin and alive to God and Christ Jesus. If there is no resurrection, then you are alive to sin and dead to God. That's it. There's no in between. There's no halvesies. The resurrection either means everything or nothing. Now, if you're at the place that I've been at in this week, it's like, well, what, what in the world do I do then? Because I'm tired of not living in victory. If victory is mine in Christ, then why am I not celebrating even amidst the pain and the struggle and the sin? What do I do then? Can I share with you? We pray right now together that grace would cover all of the lies that we've believed and all of the ways that we have lived anti the resurrection. Grace will cover those sins. We will yet again be reminded of the power of the gospel. And then we plead for an increase of faith. Because some of you tonight will be sitting in your bedroom brought with an opportunity to look at porn or not. And I'm sorry, but I have to believe that it is possible by the Holy Spirit inside of you to sit there with the temptation looming and all of a sudden say, no, he's resurrected. I don't need this crap one more day. I don't need something that provides me nothing when I have something that has already given me everything. 
Is it that simple? I believe it can be. And then in that moment, you celebrate not your strength, but the spirit working in you to remind you that you have victory in Christ. And then when we gather, do we confess? Yes. Do we share in vulnerability our sins? Oh, yes, my friends, we do that. But you know what we also do? We share victory. We point people to who we already are. We remember who we are and battle the lies that have tried to convince us that we're not. Every single one of us tonight has to be brought back to a real Savior whose real body was really broken. He did it willingly. He did it sacrificially. And he did it so that as the perfect Passover lamb, his blood would atone. His blood would bring unity between you, I, and God. And so tonight, then, this meal becomes a meal for believers to say, God, I am so sorry that I have emphasized sin so much and de-emphasized your power. God, please help me be done with those days. I know the battle is real and the war will rage on, but God, will you use me to be a testifier of the victory that I have in you in spite of my trials and sin and battle? And then the world will see. It will walk into our gatherings, our homes, the stores where we're at. And they will say, those people, those people are alive. I know what they're going through. I know what they're enduring, but they're they're alive. And then we get to say, yes, we are. We are alive. But it's because he is alive. We have victory in Christ. So let's together right now ask God to increase our faith and to help us like never ever before believe the implications of these things to be true. Father, come now. We confess the heavy burdens, the transgressions, God, that have weighed on us, the sins of our past that are still seemingly coming after us, reminding us, building regrets, remorse, and shame. God, I pray right now that you'll kill shame and condemnation. I pray that some of my friends in this room, maybe for the first time in years, will experience freedom. That shame and condemnation, regret, remorse, all of those things, God, will be wiped clean. And though in the face of their sin, God, they know that it's real, that all of a sudden all of that will be overshadowed and overpowered by a resurrection of you. So please come and enter our hearts with that, God. I pray that we would not fear, that we would not believe the lies. God, please forgive us. God, please forgive us that we have believed the father of lies so easily and negated you as the author of truth. Please, God. And right now, Father, for those who have never, ever, ever called on your name, please save them. Please stir their hearts. Show them that emptiness can be gone. That a life of defeat and turmoil and chaos with no hope can be gone. 
God, right now in all of us, would you show us the truth of our sins being crucified? Church, respond in this meal of celebration when you're ready.